I'll invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. This morning we're going to examine together verses 23 through 32. And then I think it will be helpful if we go back and read the first 12 verses of chapter 3 because there's so much reference to John the Baptist. And so this passage I want to have just familiar in our minds. But let's begin by reading Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 23. When he, that is Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. Then I think it would be helpful to turn back to chapter 3. We won't be examining chapter 3 in detail. But everybody, as Jesus is speaking, is well aware of who John Baptist is, John the Baptist is. And perhaps we need a little bit of a reminder. So I want to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, 
you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray briefly and ask God to help us understand his word. Our Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, by your Holy Spirit, recognizing that there is not in any of us naturally an ability to grasp the truth and significance of your word. It's not that it's hard to understand. Your word is clear, even though it was written, this portion we've read this morning was written several thousand years ago. It's quite plain, quite clear. And yet our hearts are deceptive and our ways are often deeply set. And so we humbly appeal that you would let your word have benefit among us this morning and teach us more about your son in his name we ask. Amen. By whose authority? By what authority? This is the dominant question that the chief priests and elders bring to Jesus. By whose authority are you doing these things? And that is the question. It's always the question. The most fundamental reason we're told in the scriptures for unbelief at the end of the day It's not lack of information. People need to hear about God and they need proofs perhaps for understanding why the Bible is true and to remove lies that have been sold them about the Bible or about the gospel. People do need a set of facts. We need to preach the gospel. But the ultimate reason for unbelief at the end of the day is the question of authority. Who's going to rule my life? Who has the right to come and to sort out my life and to determine who or what I give my time, my, my resources, my gifts, my allegiance, my obedience to? In Romans chapter 1, we learn that The wrath of God is upon men who suppress the truth in unbelief. So the issue is not a lack of truth, not a lack of evidence. The issue is authority. Sinful men and women, like all of us, naturally resent the authority of God. 
We resent the authority of Christ. As we examine Jesus' interaction with these religious hypocrites, it's, it's somewhat easy for us to come at this by as a, somewhat of a historical study. And it is a historical study. This, this actually happened in the te- temple that was built by Herod the Great in that courtyard. It actually, this crowd was gathered around Jesus. These leaders come. This, so we're learning about a historical episode. And it's 2,000 years ago. But I want to just prompt your thinking up front that, that this isn't just an examination of these crooked, proud, religious leaders. The word of God is searching out every one of us. And there is no place that we can hide from the authority of the Lord Jesus. For he is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is over all. He is our creator He is our owner, and he is our king. And all of us here this morning, young and old, no matter our background, no matter our personality, no matter our status in life, no matter our occupation, all of us are stewards, and all of us are accountable to God and to Christ for our lives lived unto him. to Christ and God the Father. As we come to Matthew chapter 21 and this scene beginning in verse 23, by now it's Wednesday morning. It's Wednesday morning. On Monday, Jesus entered into the city and uh, cursed the fig tree. The next, uh, rather, I'm sorry, Tuesday, he cursed the fig tree as he came into the city. Now it's Wednesday morning. The fig tree is withered. The amazed disciples are informed once again about the authority of Jesus, and they're instructed about prayer. It's in the morning. The city of Jerusalem is stirring as this is a week in which tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of pilgrims are all gathering to this small city, in a sense, in the middle of nowhere. The streets are beginning to swell. Jesus is on his way in, and a crowd is beginning to gather around him. Everybody by by now has heard of this Jesus of Nazareth. They've heard about what he has done. Maybe some of them have seen this guy named Lazarus actually walking with Jesus, risen from the dead, they say. There's a height of curiosity about Jesus at this point. And as Jesus goes into the temple... His work from the previous day is apparently still standing. Remember, what was that work? He cleaned house. One man came into the temple, courts, precincts, this massive complex. And he, one man, had the authority and apparently the the power and the influence to kick out the hucksters and the money changers and all the built up accoutrements of the religious establishment that God had never ordered, God had never commanded. And what it, the net result was that for people coming to worship God, it ended up being a burden, kind of like going maybe to a, a sports game in New England. I mean, you, you, better, you better check your bank account before you go and pay for a hot dog, right? I mean, that's, that's the idea is that you have to go to the temple. And so the religious uh, establishment, they say, well, the people have to come. And so 
will charge exorbitant rates for their changing money to the, the money that is acceptable that they can actually offer. We'll, we'll charge, charge exorbitant rates for they'll have to buy animals that they can slaughter and they'll have to be animals that we approve of. And, and so it was quite a racket. And the religious establishment, the chief priests and the elders all profited. It was big business. But Jesus from Nazareth had come in again to the temple this time and he had taken the money changers and all those who were selling animals and abusing the people and he had cleared them out. He kicked them out. And you have to remember that view of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is meek and mild, but you have to picture the fierceness in his face as he confronts religious hypocrisy. And he doesn't confront it with, you know, I'd like to have a conversation. Do you really think that this is helpful and edifying for the people? He comes into the temple of God that was given for the people to approach God, and he cleans house. And here on Wednesday morning, as Jesus comes, apparently none of the money changers or the hucksters have dared come back in because there's no reference at this point that Jesus had to clean it again. There's a quiet in the temple. Maybe there's the sound of pigeons or doves or sparrows as they are in the morning light flitting about. And Jesus has a crowd around him and he begins doing what is closest to his heart, the work that is most dear to his heart. And it is according to Luke chapter 20, verse 1, Jesus begins teaching the people and preaching the gospel. That's what he wanted to do. That's after all what Isaiah the prophet God had caused Isaiah to prophesy about the Messiah, that he would come to preach good news, release for the captives, good news for the humble and brokenhearted and weighed down with their sins. He had good news. And so he came into the temple, teaching the people and preaching the gospel, the good news. Luke also records in chapter 19, that the people were, quote, hanging on every word he said, end quote. Hanging on every word he said. Here it is, the busiest week in the calendar year for Jerusalem. There are hundreds of thousands, if not a million people, perhaps, surrounding in the Jerusalem, the surrounding area. A large crowd in this huge temple complex. And you can hear sparrows squawking at each other, and one voice, the voice of this man named Jesus from Nazareth, lifting up his voice, teaching and preaching to the men and women gathered around him the gospel of God, the gospel of the kingdom. His voice is the only one that's speaking until a little group of chief priests And some of the elders, the leading men among the people, work up the courage in their little group to come over on the edge of the crowd. And to one of them is charged to lift up his voice and to ask Jesus a question. They have two questions, but it's two questions in verse 23 with one intent. 
They want to question his authority. What they really want to do is they want to try to embarrass him. They want to try to disqualify him. In front of everyone, they want to try to demonstrate that he is a sham. He is a fraud. They ask him, verse 23, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? You have to hear this as not an uh, honest question. Um, it's it's question, questions laced with sarcasm, laced with ridicule. Who gave you this authority? You see, Jesus, this Jesus from Nazareth, he is a carpenter's son. He comes from a family of no great renown. He comes from a city, certainly a town of no great renown. He has not been trained in any of the right schools. He has not been taught by one of the leading rabbis. He is, according to them, a nobody from nowhere who has no right to do what he is doing. Yes, Jesus may have been proclaimed to be the Messiah by John the Baptist, He may have healed countless thousands of men and women, boys and girls, all around Israel, some who are there in Jerusalem. He may have even raised the dead and cast out demons. But those proofs of his divine authority do not meet with the chief priests and elders' accreditation standards. (laughs) And so they ask him, By whose authority do you dare come in here and challenge our authority and remove the money changers, remove those selling animals? Who gives you the right to come in here and act like you own the place? They're trying to set him up. Their question is about his authority. Well, Jesus has an answer, but his answer comes to them in the form of a question. And it's a question that will force them to answer their question with the truth. You have to see that. Jesus' response with his question forces these leaders in front of everyone to answer their own question about his authority. It's masterful, it's wise, but it demonstrates that Jesus' authority is a thorough authority. It is authority not merely of divine force or power, as though he can just zap them, but he is authoritative comprehensively in regard to the truth. And he can handle anyone or anything that would dare counter his authority. Think about that. Think about that before you want to go toe-to-toe with Jesus and his right over your life. He answers them with a question. He says in verse 25, he asks them, The baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? It's a simple question, very simple question. No one had any dirt on John the Baptist. No one had anything scandalous. 
Nobody thought that he was in it for the money. His clothes and his diet demonstrated he wasn't. Nobody could charge him with being in the ministry for selfish gain. He was a prophet in the likes of Elijah or Elisha. He was a great man, and no one denied it. Even Herod, who ultimately had him beheaded, recognized that John was the real deal. Everyone had to acknowledge that John was a righteous man. And John had testified clearly, we read it this morning in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, that he was just the forerunner, he was just the messenger of the coming king, the Messiah. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And no one doubted who he was talking about for elsewhere. For example, in the Gospel of John, we find John the Baptist pointing to Jesus and saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John was not unclear about who he thought the Messiah was. He openly announced that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised coming king, the son of David, the Messiah. So John's life was righteous, his holy testimony was undeniable, and his testimony as to who the Messiah was was also undeniable. So Jesus' question is a simple question. Anyone can answer it. A child had heard about John the Baptist. Everyone knew about this guy, and a child could answer the question. The evidence of John's holy life testified that he was sent from God. It was an overwhelming and undeniable testimony. But Jesus asked the question, and the chief priests and the elders, the leading religious establishment, can't bring themselves to answer this simple question. They claim ignorance because they can't acknowledge or admit the truth. They can't. The truth, they can't even answer the truth about where John came from. For if they admit or acknowledge the truth, they will not only answer their own question as to who's by whose authority Jesus does what he does, for John is from God, and if he's from God, then he testified that Jesus is the Messiah from God. They will testify to the crowd there that John's testimony about Jesus' authority is true. They'll not only answer the question as to who John is, if they answer the question, they'll answer, the, they'll answer their own question as to who Jesus is. If they answer Jesus' question, they will become the leading testifiers to Jesus as the Messiah. And word will start to ripple throughout the whole town. Did you hear the chief priests and the elders acknowledge that John the Baptist is from heaven and that his testimony about Jesus was true and they did it in the temple courts of all places? I mean, you might as well hand over the throne of David to Jesus right that moment. Their inquisition of Jesus suddenly becomes the foremost validation 
of Jesus's ministry in the very temple of God. So they claim ignorance. All they can do is lie, and that's what it is. They are lying, saying, we don't know. They are agnostic, as so many in our hearts when they are in unbelief. Agnosticism, claiming, I don't know, I'm not sure, most of the time is not because of a lack of facts, but because of the presence of a will. A will I don't want to acknowledge the truth. And so the very men, the chief priests and elders, who are charged with judging the truth and who claim to be fit to judge Jesus' legitimacy, as they call it into question, they cannot even bring themselves to discern or admit what is obvious to everyone. John the Baptist was from heaven. John the Baptist was from heaven. Again, this is, this is not ignorance. This is not a need for more time or more proof. This is willful unbelief. And you see that the issue of belief is dominant in this passage. Their predetermined, self-serving, cowardly unbelief is exposed. It's exposed in verses 23 through 27. Jesus, they say, we don't know, verse 27. And Jesus, with everybody looking on, probably with a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face of authority, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He's not dodging their question. He's exposing their hypocrisy. But Jesus is not done. Verses 28 through 32, which is as far as we'll go this morning. Notice that Jesus doesn't affirm and understand their unbelief. I I want to point that out because... It's the most popular and most common spirit of the evangelical church today to want to always soften the blow, to almost protect unbelief, to almost legitimize unbelief. It is absolutely right that we welcome those who don't know God, don't know Christ, who are far from Christ, maybe never heard about the Bible, never heard the gospel of Jesus. It is absolutely appropriate for us to be, as those who are sinners ourselves, once far from God, to, to welcome them sincerely, to, to be gentle, to not necessarily shove the truth in their face, depending on the circumstances, to recognize that sometimes those who are far from God have a, do really have a lot of information they have to process. They They don't know about God. They don't know about Jesus. So it's absolutely right that we are humble and gentle, as gracious as Jesus was with those who are sinners and unbelievers. And yet at the same time, Jesus never coddled unbelief. He never legitimized it. He never said, I see your point. He, he, never, he never had the tactic of, well, 
maybe you need some more time. Maybe you need some more information. It was never his tactic to invite unbelievers into his group of disciples and let them hang around perennially in his inner circle and treat them as though they were in even though they didn't believe in him. Jesus always held the line. He came for sinners of the most horrific and wretched kind. Men like me and women like you, men and women like you. It's, we are all sinners. We recognize that. He came for sinners, but he did not come to make sinners comfortable. Never. If you're an unbeliever, if you were an unbeliever in those days, it was never comfortable to be around Jesus with your unbelief. Even if he was kind, even if he was gracious, the truth of who he is and the morality that he represented, the, the law of God, the righteousness of God, was uncomfortable because it presented you with a demand, a demand to forsake your unbelief and your ungodliness and your sin, repent and turn to God in faith and contrition. The gospel always does that. And so it's it's almost a bit of an aside, but I, I want to point out the obvious that Jesus does not accept unbelief as legitimate. He doesn't think it's good. He doesn't think it's something that you can take a while to work on. He exposes it, and where it's, especially where it's held with an air of superiority and pride, he condemns it. And that's what we see him next in verses 28 through 32. We see him not only expose the unbelief of the chief priests and leaders, he condemns it. Jesus tells a brief story about a father and two sons. Um, And we must remember that it's in the context of a culture that, at least on the surface, revered the Ten Commandments. And one of the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment, is honor your father and mother. So in the culture, in the Jewish culture that Jesus is speaking to, even among the religious leaders, it is held as paramount that one is to honor and obey his or her father. His authority is to be absolute, and even if it's not as an expression of love to God in this culture, it was assumed to be absolute. To dishonor one's father was the greatest sin or shame. And so Jesus tells a story about a father and two sons, and and some of you in in your translations may have a a little bit different order that's representing a a few uh, ancient manuscripts that have a little variation in the presentation, but uh, no matter, the, the point is very clear. It's very simple. There's one father, there's two sons. The father owns a vineyard, and he needs help. And the fathers here understand that. Every once in a while, we could use help. And the father says to one of the sons, son, go today to work in the vineyard. 
And the son in verse 29 at first says, no. <laughs> Tells his father, uh, no, I, I, I don't want to go to the vineyard today. It's hot. <laughs> um, I want to go hang out with my friends. Um, I, I don't, Dad, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to the vineyard. I will not. It's defiant. It's, it's blunt. It's shocking. Those who were there hearing Jesus would have been shocked. No one they knew that was respectable would dare ever say to their father, I will not. But the first son who says, I will not, afterward, his conscience kicks in and he's stricken. He recognizes that he's dishonored his father. He's ashamed. Jesus says he regretted it. He he repents of it. He, he feels remorse. He is pierced in his conscience. And not only does he feel remorse, he recognizes what he said was wrong, how he treated his father was wrong, but he goes full circle and repents and actually does what his father asked him to do. On the front end, he's defiant and disobedient, but his repentance is thorough it's inward, he regrets it, and it's not mere regret. He follows through and he went, verse 29. Went where? Into the vineyard to work. It's an illustration of repentance. So on the front end, he's a rascal. He's, he's a defiant, disobedient son. But he changes and he repents and he goes and he works. The second son, on the other hand, on the front end, when his father says, son, go work in the vineyard today, the son presumes, or rather uh, pretends obedience. He even does it with respect. I will, sir. He wants to keep up appearances. After all, he's thinking, I am the son that, that always pleases you, father. It's that rascal, that other one that's always defiant, getting in trouble. I will, sir. He says he will, but, verse 30, he did not go. He feigns obedience. He feigns respect and reverence, but he doesn't obey. So Jesus asked the question of the leaders there with the crowd present, which of the two sons did the will of his father? And they said, the obvious, the first. Even though the first son at first refused and disobeyed, he actually followed through and did what his father called him to do. It was the first who obeyed the first who did the will of his father. They answer the first. But in their answer, they unwittingly, unknowingly condemn themselves, the the leaders, the false leaders. Jesus, and think of it, I mean, what a scene. Hundreds of men gathered around there in the court of Gentiles and in a, it's a large court. There's, there's room for a large crowd. 
Jesus's voice is lifted up. They, they've been probably on the outskirts of the crowd, and so they have to lift up. And so this exchange is going over the heads of people. And Jesus asked them this question. Now they're on the spot. Everybody's heard the parable or the story of the two sons. Everybody knows and everybody agrees that it was the first son. And Jesus then follows their answer, verse 31. Truly I say to you, can you imagine the scene? Here are the most respectable religious men in Jerusalem. They're in the temple of all places. And in front of this crowd, Jesus looks them square in the eye without any nervousness, without any flushing in his face. And he's not red in the face. He's not shaking. He's not nervous. He doesn't have to work up the courage. With all the dignity and authority and majesty of the king of kings, he looks at these religious hypocrites and says to them with his voice raised over the crowd, truly I say that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him and you seeing this did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. Boom. The only thing you're hearing at that moment is the sparrows squawking. And no one there can believe that Jesus has just said what he has just said. He has condemned the most respected religious leaders in front of everyone. He has exposed their unbelief and now he has condemned it. He has not only exposed their outward behavior, but notice in verse 32, he exposes their heart. The king of hearts and minds knows that though they feigned to respect, they, when John the Baptist was around, these religious leaders they even went to John the Baptist. That's why John says, who told you to come? In other words, such was the swell of support for the truth of John the, ministries, John the Baptist's ministry that the religious establishment had to kind of go along with it for a while. They at least had to outwardly concede that John was legitimate. And it was respectful for them to go to John the Baptist and to, to listen to him. But when Herod chopped off John's head, Jesus says, you did not even feel remorse. He compares and contrasts the religious establishment with the lowest scum of society at that time, the prostitutes and the tax collectors. It's hard for us to maybe in our minds to think of how looked down upon these individuals were. But we heard in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3 that prostitutes and sinners of all kinds responded to John the Baptist's ministry and came to him sincerely confessing and repenting of their sins, coming to John in contrition and humility and brokenness, acknowledging the truth about who God is and who they were. And Jesus 
acknowledges that these tax collectors, and why, that, why tax collectors? Is, is it just ba- a bad line of work? No. You have to remember that the tax collectors were traitors. Israel at this point is dominated by a foreign power, the Roman Empire, the Roman government. Tax collectors are local Jews who do Rome's dirty business and raise funds for Caesar and everyone up, up the food chain. They charged exorbitant prices. They were the guys who caused widows to starve because they were cruel, they were merciless, and they collected exorbitant funds for the foreign occupiers. They were, with prostitutes, the lowest of the low. But Jesus had a tax collector among his ranks. One of them's name was Matthew. Think about it as Matthew writes this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's here testifying to the wonder of the gospel, but he's also in a very moving way highlighting his own sin and unworthiness. It's not that the tax collectors and prostitutes were inherently smart or they were inherently likable. They truly were sinners. Their sin was detestable to God and against his law. They were lawbreakers through and through. But the difference is that they were sinners who acknowledged their sin and responded to the gospel with faith, the message of John the Baptist with faith. The leaders, on the other hand, did not. The religious leaders were like the first son. They put on a show of reverence for God. They kept up the appearance of doing God's business but they didn't do the first thing to obey or please God. And what is the first thing? In John chapter 6, you don't need to turn there, but verses 28 and 29, there was a crowd that asked Jesus, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. You ready? That you may believe in him whom he has sent. Responding humbly to the word of God is the first work and the foremost work that God wants of men and women. And the leaders didn't. The tax collectors and prostitutes, the lowest of society, acknowledged the truth and they went to John the Baptist trembling, expressing true contrition and repentance. The religious leaders, on the other hand, claimed to have respect but that respect was only self-serving. John warned them. He called them a brood of vipers, and he called them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But several years have gone on now, and these leaders have not repented, and there is no fruit. And Jesus exposes even their heart in verse 32. You did not believe or recognize John and his message, and worse yet, you did not even feel remorse afterwards so to believe in him. Suddenly the temple courtyard becomes 
a preview of the last judgment. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. First John, rather, First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul warns us to be short, not quick to pass judgment on one another, but, quote, to wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, end quote. The Lord who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. The motives of these men's hearts were exposed on that day in front of everyone, and that is a preview of what will take place for every man and woman apart from Christ, who in pride presumes to be exempt from the word of God and the message of the gospel that Jesus is king. Every man and woman who presumes that they can rule their own lives, that self-rule is acceptable somehow to God rather than Christ's rule. The day of judgment is coming, and not only the fact of unbelief will be revealed, but the nature of it. And that's a terrifying thought. It ought to be. How humiliating for these men to have their very hearts exposed in front of this whole crowd. The bare fact of not only of their unbelief, but the gross nature of it. They didn't even lack remorse. We need to learn from this that unbelief may have a cloak of respect now, but the day is coming when unbelief will be seen for what it is. And it's not only not pretty, it's wicked. It's wicked. So what about us? What ought we to do as we reflect on this exchange with these religious leaders this morning? Quickly in closing, just two exhortations. First and most obvious to everyone here this morning, man, woman, boy and girl, boys, girls, teens. I know you may not have understood everything I said maybe this morning, especially boys and girls, and you may may have checked out. It's all right. But listen, God says that Jesus is your savior and your king that he has the right to rule your life, to tell you what to do. He's a good king. His ways are good. His ways are kind. His way leads to life and joy and happiness. But there is no mistake in the gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord, not you. Uh, Just yesterday, our family was uh, enjoying a day uh, together uh, up in the White Mountains and jumping one of the rivers, maybe not jumping, maybe that's a little, I wasn't jumping anyways, um, but in cooling off with a lot of, you know, trying to cool off. And I just witnessed, you know, in passing this scene where this child was just screaming at her mother. And this was not like a little two-year-old. This is a, this is a, I don't know, this is a child who's old, intelligent, 
knows what she is doing, just screaming at her mother, just defying. And I, I was around enough to know the, the circumstances. It was, it was nothing dramatic going on. There was no harm had been done to the child. It was, it was just, it was this amazing, just violent defiance. Where am I going with this? That may have caused a scene for a little bit there, but that is the nature of our hearts. We defy the authority of God and Jesus. But God is calling us to believe in his son, Jesus, and to submit to him. So the first thing I want to press upon you is Jesus, your Savior, really? Is he your Lord? He is. But have you humbly acknowledged your sin and your need for him? Have you come to him like a prostitute or tax collector, a boy or girl or man or woman guilty of sin? Maybe you haven't done those sins, but all of us have sinned against God. Have you acknowledged your sin and your need for a Savior? And secondly and finally this morning, all of us are called this morning to examine our relationship to the authority of Christ, aren't we? By whose authority? It's not only the religious leaders who didn't like Jesus' authority, is it? It always comes back to this. When the Holy Spirit is kind of knocking on the door with their conscience on our heart, calling us to mend our ways in light of the word of God. When, when the Holy Spirit or the word of God read or preached calls us to repent in an area that we know is not right. And our hearts respond. How do they respond? Do they respond with willing submission or, no, this is my life, this is my way, this is just the way I am, I have the right to do this. How do we relate to the authority of Christ Do we acknowledge that he has every right to come and to clean house and to cleanse this temple which he has made, indwelt by his Holy Spirit? How do we relate to the authority of Jesus? This text is a call, a fresh call to faith and submission. That we forsake our pride and willful unbelief and that we humbly bow and worship our good king. Let's pray. And so, Jesus, we do so now. We bow before you. We worship you. We acknowledge that you have every right to to do whatever you will with our lives. We acknowledge that your laws and your principles and your instructions and your word are good and pure. And we confess that within each of our hearts and our sinful nature is the the remains, or maybe not so much of a remains for some, maybe it's a, quite a presence of willful defiance. We pray that by your word and by your spirit that you'll overthrow every obstacle, every protest in our hearts, and that you will humble us. And like Matthew, the tax collector, and other sinners, we will know the profound joy of being raised from the place of humiliation and loved and accepted and forgiven, 
washed and cleansed by you, clothed with your righteousness. We pray this in your name. Amen.